All right. Hello, everyone. Happy St. Patrick's Day and welcome to another episode of Inside Writing. This show is presented by Gotham Writers Workshop, offering classes of all types and sizes. You can visit us at GothamWriters.com. All right, before we get into the chat about writer's block, a few quick announcements. Uh, at any point during the show, you can use the Q&A button on your Zoom dashboard to ask questions uh, for, for our Q&A panel or Q&A session at the end of the show. Uh, it's, there's that little Q&A button. Some of you are already using it uh, down there on the Zoom panel. So get those questions in as soon as you have them. The more questions we have, the sooner I'll cut to them. So whenever you get them, go ahead and post them. Also, if you want to get caught up on any episodes from season one or two of Inside Writing, or if you missed last week's episode on social media, you can find them all on the Gotham Writers YouTube channel or on any major podcasting platform. Same goes with today's episode. Uh, we'll have the recording up on YouTube and podcast by tomorrow. And while you're there, like us, subscribe us, leave a review. It helps spread the word. On to the subject of the day, which again is writer's block. Uh, we're going to start with a quote, and there are so many quotes out there. Uh, and fresh takes on what writer's block is. But for today's episode, we're going with a classic from Maya Angelou, who said quite simply, nothing will work unless you do. Now, let's meet our panelists. Uh, we have three today, you might have noticed. So first off, a poet, essayist, and editor, as well as, the, as well as author of the books, The Incredible Shrinking Woman and No God in This Room, Athena Dixon. Hello, Athena. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Our second panelist, syndicated columnist, investigative science writer, and author of the science-based book, Unfuckology, A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence, Amy Alkin. Hello, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, and our final third panelist, a writer and artist and author of the works appearing in, uh, uh, appearing in Tin House, Lit Hub, and NPR, as well as the book of essays, Areas of Fog, Will Dowd. Hello, Will. Hello. So let's begin as we usually do with a definition. Athena, I want to start with you. What does writer's block mean to you? I think for me, writer's block is a way station or a pause in your path in order to regroup um, on the current project that you're, work that you're working on. Mm -hmm. Amy, what about you? What is writer's block? Um, for me, I agree with Maya Angelou. Um, basically, writer's block is the misconception um, that inspiration will and should strike you and that perfectly formed paragraphs will fall out of you. I like that. Will, what about you? What is writer's block? I would say that writer's block is an intractable dry spell in your creative work. I would say it's mysterious. It's kind of has a quicksand quality. The more you struggle, the more you sink into it. And I also think it is a rite of passage for anybody who is going to commit to the writing life. I like that. I was just saying fresh takes on, on writer's block. And we got three here. Uh, Will, I want to start with you on this. Wherever you look on the internet, there are all these solutions to overcome writer's block. But the one you see on, on just about every list is just write. That seems to be the, the one way that everybody agrees you get through it. So why then is it so hard for people to get through it if all you have to do is write? Yeah, I think, um, I know, I've, I've, I've seen so many hilarious folk remedies on the internet, including... Um, to write on a merry-go-round. <laughs> and um, so th there's a lot out there, but I would say that one of the qualities of writer's block, I think, is that this kind of recursive self-consciousness about the writer's block itself, that you can kind of get trapped in the spiral. And so um, I referred to it earlier as like quicksand. And so sometimes just um, thinking, well, I just have to write my way out of it only increases the kind of shame and self-awareness about the problem. and I would say that one of the more helpful tips that I saw online came from Sylvia Plath, who said that during her dry spells, what she focuses on is actually living harder, uh, looking more clearly, listening, so that when the writer's block does lift, she will have accumulated all this rich experience to now write from. So sometimes uh, taking a step away and not trying to write through it can be a possible solution. Amy, is writing the ultimate cure? Is it that simple? What's your problem? The way you solve a problem is you figure out what it, what it is. So do you not have an idea about what you want to write about? Okay, that's one problem. 
are you having a problem with the opening of your chapter? That's another problem. And you look at why am I having this problem? Am I starting out in the wrong place if you're having a problem in the chapter? Um, do I just need to take a break from it? Do I need a walk? Um, or like if I don't have ideas, how do I get ideas? What do I look at? Do I look at books or magazines? Do I go out and talk to people? So there are different solutions. And I think writer's block for me, it's a very namby-pamby thing. I have writer's block. I can't write. There's a great quote from Howard Fast, the late novelist, who said, plumbers don't have plumber's block. A page a day is a book a year. Now, sometimes that page is going to be like, I mean, just like the bleeding words out of you. You know, every word is horrible and hard, and sometimes it'll come more easily, but you just do it. And see, I use a timer. I turn on a timer and I write, and different things have different timers. My column, which is really intense writing, is 52 minutes. My book, I do two-hour stints. And it doesn't matter, oh, are you, are you having a bad time? <laughs> like, poor you. Keep writing. And you have to write the crap to get to correct the crap the next day. I want to get back to timer. Uh, we're going to talk about writing routine and that stuff in a second. But Athena, I want to hear from you. Uh, what is it like to write through writer's blog? Does it get easier the more that you do it? I can't necessarily say that it gets easier because I think each individual instance of writer's block is different. I think it depends on the project you're working on. I think it depends on where you are in your own personal life. I think it depends on the expectations that exist outside of your writing life. Um, for me, my biggest goal when talking about writing is to demystify this idea of the writer's life. Um, I'm 100% honest in saying that I do not write every day. And it doesn't mean that I'm not being creative every day, but it means that there are some days where I just cannot write. Whether it be that I have to give my, myself the grace to be able to say this was a really, really bad day and what I need to do is listen to Spotify. And then that Spotify playlist sparks something else. So I don't think it gets easier. I think it's like you get better at managing the writer's block. And I think you start to understand what triggers it for you. I think you understand things that you can do to kind of bypass it. But I think that there's really no getting over it. It's just a, ma a matter of management. Can I add something to what she just said? Absolutely. Um, Athena, I love that you do that. I think it's very healthy that, hey, I'm going to have a Spotify day. I call it, I sometimes have what I call crap brain days. And I think about it, I think I'm a hard worker. I work really hard when I can. My brain's all just, I don't know, it feels like soup. And so I'm going to read, or sometimes I watch TV. Now this, I come from a family where we didn't watch TV. So this is like a heresy of heresies. But I will watch TV like in the middle of the day, watch Grey's Anatomy or some British crime show, you know, and it's okay because yesterday I worked my ass off. And so today, like crap brain day, whatever. Why would I sit just, you know, futilely the whole day at the computer with brain fog being useless when I can have fun, have fun. Good. <laughs> so all of our three panelists here have written a lot about writer's blocks. So I want to get into some specifics of what you've written about over the years. Athena, I want to start with you. Uh, you wrote a piece for moving forwards about how you named your imposter syndrome, which a lot of people see as a, a part of writer's block. Um, you, you gave it a name, you gave it the name Derek. Uh, <laughs> and that, that sort of helped you sort of conceptualize how did that help how does that process work what did it change for you I think it's easier for me to be able to break it down into like a singular voice I think when you think about writer's block you think of it as this like massive mountain and you can yell all you want at a mountain it's not going to move it's going to be there but if you break it down to something like a person then it's easy for me to say Derek okay go ahead and shut up today or Derek is being irrational today um, and that really came from my, my friend, Angie. She was listening to a podcast um, about depression and she came to me one day and she's like, you should probably implement this into your life. And for me, it really worked because it's like the idea of writing a book or an essay collection is so vast that if I can say this is one small portion that I can control and I can control Derek to some degree, then it's easier to deal with. It makes it um, more human. Um, and I can deal with human beings. I do that on a daily basis. I love that. And, and Will, that, that kind of fits in with what you wrote at Writer's Digest about That's how, right. you know, we should look at writer's block as an actual physical illness, like a cold. How, what, what was the logic there? Just changing perspectives. Does that make it easier if you just see it as something other than this big looming weight? Yeah, I mean, I, the reason I... Uh, advocated for that is because when you get a cold, it's really not your fault, right? There's no shame involved. And I feel like part of what writer's block feeds on and what fuels it is a sense of shame. And so if we look at it as 
you know, this is something that just happens when you're out and about as a writer. And it's just something that is going to burn itself out, you know, and then afterwards you will have built up a little bit of an immunity so that the next time it comes around, you'll be better suited to face it. I think that that reframes it in kind of a healthy way. And I too have heard and thought to myself the, that I've heard that before that there's no such thing as plumber's block. And that can be super helpful some days to get over the kind of self-pitying. But also I do think that there is something qualitatively different, different about writing where you're not, you know, you're not solving a kind of mechanical problem. Sometimes you don't even know what the problem is. You're writing into the blank page. Um, so I think sometimes we do have, we are justified in the occasional fight, flight, freeze response to the uncertainty that comes with writing. So I think if you can take the shame out of it, it's, it's, uh, it will help. You can often do something about writing. You don't think you can, but if you sit down and you put in the 52 minutes or the two hours, it's going to be unpleasant sometimes. But what happens is as you do it, you'll get one idea and you'll get into what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, I had to practice that, said is flow. Flow is a state where you lose yourself in the work. You forget about you. You're just, in, it's like joy of work. And you can't do that if you don't write. And so this thing of like, oh, I don't feel like writing. Someone said that to me. He wants to write a book that he didn't have the, the inspiration that day to write the proposal. It's like, I write seven days a week. I have a book due. I have my extended deadline now. It's really a hard book. It's trying to kill me. Um, I have my column. I write. It doesn't matter. Am I sick? Am I throwing up? Well, maybe then I can't write, but um, I sit down and I do the work and then stuff comes of it. You can edit it. You know, this is, this is a view of somebody who's a professional as opposed to this, like, well, I'm not inspired, which just like, no, I can't, I can't do that. This is, this is what I do, who I am. So Amy, I wanted to get into your writing on this as well. You wrote about this in your book uh, where you say there's no such thing as writer's block. And you've kind of gotten into that already. Um, and then there's another line that really interested me where you said the secret about writer's block is that it's an indulgence. Can you elaborate on that a bit? It's what I was talking about before. This idea of like, oh, I don't have inspiration. Well, work on getting some. You know, that's why I use the timer because you need to, you know, you need to find stuff. I learned this. I worked in advertising right out of college. And what people would do when they were trying to brainstorm ideas is get, get visual scrap. So I have stuff all over my house, art books, joke books, you know, look through stuff, go on the internet, read articles, find things, you know, riff off something, and then you can go somewhere. But if you're not doing anything, if your mind's not active, you know, you're not going to come up with anything. This just this idea of like, oh, I'm going to lick my wounds. This is terrible. I've got to be nice to myself. No, you, you, you need to write. But then, you know, what Athena said, be reasonable. You know, if, you're, if your brain is just really shot someday, you know, listen to Spotify, take a walk, do something, and also have balance in your life so you're not burned out. You know, make yourself call friends, make yourself go out, make yourself do fun things and read a book, you know, and, and so you're not just um, grinding the gears all the time. I would say, I think, too, that part of that is on those days when you're not able to write, that it's maybe to stop looking at it as an idea of I don't have the inspiration to write. I, outside of writing, try to cultivate other creative interests in other creative communities. And even if I'm not actually coming to the page that day, that I'm using that, that playlist. Or like for me, for Spotify, I have playlists for characters and projects and individual essays. So I'm able to listen to that. And then I know when I come to the page, that sparks something else. Or I have a set of documentaries that I keep in my Netflix queue that I want to watch because they're directly tied to something that I want to write. So the idea of not making and this probably is, sounds terrible, not making writing your whole creative life because you, you can only have so much that you pull from that cup before you need to refill it. So having other creative pursuits and other things to add into it so when you don't have that inspiration directly, you have a way to go out and get that inspiration. See, for me, I'm writing science. So this morning I'm reading this on vitamin K, this trial. Um, and so I read that stuff and I take notes from it. And so I'm writing this very hard. It's a book to vet medical practice standards. And so, for example, here's something I learned this from Elmore Leonard, who is a friend. My boyfriend was his researcher for 33 years. He's the crime writer in Get Shorty and all these other things, you know, his movies. Um, Elmore used to, when he was starting as a writer, 
write, he'd type out a paragraph of Hemingway and then write the next paragraph because he was very influenced by him. And so what I'll do is I'll take notes from science and stuff will become something. But on one of my chapters, it was so hard. I just look, I just had notes and notes and notes and see what I try to do when I think people should try to do as writers is to look at what you're doing as your process and say, is this kind of sick? Is this bad? You know, I was floundering. So I took a book by a medical writer I respect. And I just copied quotes out of the book and put them in paragraphs. It ended up staying in the book, but I needed to write something that was cohesive. And the only way I could do it at that point was to copy his words and his thoughts. I didn't steal them. I said, this person said this, and this person said that, but it gave me a start to the chapter. And then I got the rest done and I kept most of it. Well, I want to circle back to something you well, something you wrote in the uh, in your Writer's Digest article, which is that you you think that maybe writers fear writer's block too much, and I wonder if that kind of comes into this whole writer's block is a lot worse when we make it worse ourselves. So, do you think that that plays into the fear element, just is fearing what its power is and and feeling like we can't do anything about it? I think so. Yeah, and that's to to use my disease metaphor, but thinking about it as the common cold, I think would be more appropriate because it shrinks it down to size. Um, I would also say that if you have, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you can't get yourself to sit down and you have to use a timer and call a friend or use some of these uh, tips that Amy's advocating, I think those are great for pushing through the kind of natural resistance we all have to get our butt in the chair and to work. But when I think of writer's block, I don't think of that kind of daily, you know, or even a week long kind of resistance or not having having a bad day. I think of something that stretches on that's kind of fundamentally mysterious to who you are. I think of like Joseph Mitchell, who went to work from nine to five to The New Yorker for the last 32 years of his life and never produced anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about these kind of longer, larger scale blocks. Um, so. I think trying to shrink it down is, is, it can be helpful. Um, as far as the motivation, I like what Amy's saying and I actually use some of the things she's talking about on a daily basis. I try to, you have to sort of trick your trick yourself to sit down and think, okay, well, I, I can do 25 minutes. So let me just, and then of course at minute 25, now you're in it and you know, you're writing away. So writing, we need, in order to be motivated, the way human willpower works is that you need to show your brain that you're not just pissing away energy. And a lot of times writing feels that way because you haven't come up with anything wonderful in the hour or whatever. And so your brain's going to say, we don't want to give you more willpower. What changes that is a sense that you have succeeded and to finish the 52 minutes. So oh, I finished, I did it. You know, that feels good. And what I do in between doing that is not brain stuff. I give my brain a vacation. I'll like clean something put away 10 dishes. I like these 10 things. I have ADD. It's some kind of crazy number thing, but then I've done 10. I, I finished. I did something. Athena, I want to hear what you have to say about, because uh, you said you don't write every day. You don't make yourself. So what do you have a, a writing routine or do you just kind of go with the flow whenever you're feeling it, you go for it. Um, no, I don't necessarily write every day. Um, I have been a federal employee for 12 years. So I have a very regimented work schedule Monday through Friday. So I write after work, I write on weekends, I write on lunch breaks, on regular breaks, whenever I can. Um, but I also have a writing group that I sprint with as an accountability partner, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. So we come together, we turn off our cameras and our mics and we write. And it's a way to have a set schedule that I can come and go with as I please. Um, but what's important to me is if I'm not writing, like I've said before, is to do something creative. So. I have my serious writing, which is writing essays and, and things of that nature, but I also write fan fiction because fan fiction is a writing escape for me. And it's another lane that I can be in that allows me to write and have a writing community that doesn't have the expectations of production to it. Um, but my writing routine is write when I can. And some days there's inspired writing, some days there's not. Um, but no, I, I have to make the best of whatever time I have because I, I honestly don't have the portion of the day to, um, to write. So if I can say I leave work at 5 p.m. and I'm going to write from 8 to 10 on Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, then that's what I do. So there is no everyday writing for me, but there's always something creative every single day. And I think part of that is giving yourself the grace to understand that depending on what your life looks like, your writing life is completely different. I almost think about it as like different genres of writing. 
Um, so a fiction writer writes different than a personal essay or essay writes differently than a poet. Um, and so you fit where you can fit. And as long as you're giving your work your all when you're coming to the page and you're doing the best work that you can do, I think that you give yourself the grace for the time when you can't actually do it. Well, what about you? What's your writing schedule like? Do you have a pretty strict schedule for yourself or, or how does it work for you? I do. I, I do find that my productivity definitely increases if I'm stuck within like a container, like, okay, I have a deadline. I have to produce this amount every week or this amount every day. And I do find that that's, it's a good way to keep you from um, becoming too self-conscious about what you're doing. I like to try to keep my head down because there's often, I don't know if you're like me, you have this instinct to look up and think about the big picture all the time and plan because you want to assure yourself that the path you're on is gonna end at your destination and it's gonna succeed. And yet there's always uncertainty built into this process. So the more you can focus on just putting putting that next puzzle piece, I feel like uh, the actual, the more productive you are. So yeah, I try to keep it within schedule and, and uh, with a word count every day. So you brought up a, a point that I wanna hear from all of you on now is the point of deadlines, which you know, for some writers, we don't all have deadlines. So, so we enforce our own deadlines. Amy, I'm curious, do you, it sounds like you, mo you mostly always have a deadline. Do you ever set deadlines for yourself and how do you hold yourself accountable to them? I have a weekly column deadline. So, and my column is funny and then it's science. And so, and I don't always know what the science is or sometimes it's more complicated to explain because I explain it in terms that everyone can understand. So sometimes translating sciences takes a long time. So that I do weekly. I have a book deadline and um, it's, it's now an extended book deadline, but I try to be responsible in turning things in on time. We have, there's something called the planning fallacy, which is we never allow enough time for how much it's going to take to finish something. And I realized that, but what happened with my book was I added, it has very short chapters. I added um, actually like 25 chapters and really hard, horrible stuff. It's really terrible. I, I you know, this book I had to write it, but um, it's medical and <laughs> I, I can't wait to not write medical anything again. Um, and so, but my, my publisher, they're really good about it. They understand. So we worked it out. They pushed the pub date back. Now I have a really good pub date just further along. And so that's the kind of thing. What I learned though, this is maybe helpful to people when they're writing articles. So um, a fact doesn't change because you sit on it. So as soon as I know I'm going to be late, I tell an editor um, that I'm going to be late. And so then they can plan for it instead of waiting till the last minute, because then it makes it really hard on them and then they can manage it. So it's, I usually do okay in, the, in those areas. And so wait, was the other question about self deadlines? Yeah. Setting deadlines for yourself and how you hold yourself accountable to them. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I do the more time thing because the thing is realistically, you don't know, is today going to be a good day? <clears throat> is this like yesterday night, I spent all night looking something up um, to, for a paragraph or one line in a paragraph. I never got it. <laughs> it's crazy, but I did the work. So now I know it's not there. If the research, somebody like said something and it's wrong. So that's what you have to do and not just go, I'm going to write a page or whatever it is. I think that's just really unhelpful. Athena, you've mentioned having a writing group that sort of holds each other accountable. Is that sort of the main attraction there? Are there ever times where you have to hold yourself accountable? And how do you do that? Um, I'm probably, it's a good thing that I live alone because I work on like a Google calendar, a whiteboard, sticky notes, and a project notebook. Um, and so I give myself quarterly goals for larger projects. So I'm working on my next collection of essays. And so for the first quarter of 2020, that was my focus. Next quarter of 2020, I'm working on a screenplay. Next quarter, I'm doing the second draft of my novel. And then fourth quarter, I will circle back to the actual um, next collection of essays. So I work on multiple projects at a time. So I don't feel like it's getting stale. Um, so I set quarterly deadlines. I also set yearly deadlines. So I have three specific goals for the entire year that I want to make by the end of the year. Um, and those are larger creative goals. But I also use my Google Calendar because it makes me, my phone is 100% in my hands all the time. So it gives me reminders um, leading up to particular projects. Um, but I will say, I will give myself credit and say that I'm very, very good at turning in before deadlines. Um, it's a nervous tick of mine. Like I like to be early to everything. And so I make sure that that's done. 
Um, but I think my difference between me um, and probably the other two panelists is that I don't write articles um, or columns. So I strictly work in working on long form book projects and also um, personal essay, which those deadlines vary depending on who I'm submitting to. So I don't have those kind of weekly or daily goals that I have to meet because they're usually further out. Will, what about you? Do you set deadlines for yourself? And again, same question is how you hold yourself accountable. Yeah, I do. Um, especially if I'm working on something longer that doesn't have a kind of built in deadline, there isn't somebody waiting for it at the end of the week. Um, I'll try to micro slice it so that, you know, I'll say, okay, I've got, I've got to hit this point by the end of today uh, or by midday. And then um, what I try to do is if I do hit my goal, I try to celebrate in some way, even if it's just minor, find some way to reward myself because I think that kind of helps to build that habit and that feedback that, okay, you know, stay, stay on, stay on the road. So, yeah, I think it's important to kind of work on multiple timescales. And I like what Athena said. I, I, I'm impressed by her, you know, her ambitions and in her plans at the yearly scale. And then if you, and then you can kind of create like a fractal version of that through, through the course of a day or a week. So honestly, it, it sounds like you all have such a good grip on writer's block. So I want to try to rewind a little bit in your writing career. And Will, I want to start with you here. What was, if you can remember, what was your first experience with writer's block and how did you find this routine that worked for you? Was it trial and error or what did you do? So I had two main experiences with writer's block and they, like two, two sources, um, streams that came together and formed this dam of writer's block. Um, one, I had just left a graduate program. So I had that workshop experience, which is when you sit around and like a dozen people, you know, critique your first draft. And that can be really great. It can save you a lot of time. It can help teach you what kind of writer you are. But it also um, just creates this chorus of critics in your head that now you carry with you. And so I think coming out of the workshop and re reclaiming and, and regaining the privacy of just you alone with the blank page and, and kind of shutting the door so that you can hear your own voice took, took some time. And then I also had a change in my writing process just physically because I had visual issues. And so I had to learn how to write with audio feedback instead of visual feedback. And I, through that process, really discovered how important the kind of biological circuit is to writing. I mean, it's not just a mental phenomenon. I was like, wow, this is, this is this feedback between my fingertips on the keys, the screen, my eyes, and my brain, and just this circuit. And now it was going between my fingertips and my, my, my ears as I listened. Mm -hmm. And so just adapting to that took a lot of time, and it actually made me change my genre. So I would say also staying flexible if you're in some kind of block like that, um, not holding on to a kind of obsolete vision of what your writing has to look like, being open to a different, uh, different form. Uh, can be really helpful. So, Athena, what about you? What was your first brush? If, if you can, again, if you can remember this far, what was your first experience with writer's block and how did you learn how to regiment yourself as you have? Um, I can have two at the same time as well. Um, very similar to Will, I finished my MFA in 2008 and I came out of that program knowing a lot more than I knew going in. However, when I finished, I had zero idea of who I was as a writer. I knew what I was supposed to do and I knew what good writing was um, as taught, but I didn't know who I was and I didn't know my voice. So for quite a while after I graduated from the MFA program, I just did not write. I could, every time I would sit down to write, it was, I have no earthly idea how to write something good. And I edited everything away before it ever hit the page. The minute the thought formed, I said, no, this isn't going to be good enough. This does not fit the standard. So I didn't write for several years after I finished my MFA program because I just didn't know what to do. Um, and then the second one was uh, 2019. I went to Tin House and I went in and I thought, wow, I know what I'm writing and my book is going to be this, this, and this. And I went there and I left a week later completely unsure what I was writing. Not in a bad way, but it was the first time I looked at my own words and they felt foreign to me. And so there was like this massive block that I couldn't get beyond for a while because I didn't know where I was headed with the writing. So it kind of stopped me. 
Um, I think I answered the question. You did, yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, and Amy, before this life of writing on deadlines and meeting all these criteria, what was writer's block like for you when you were first getting started? How did you learn your schedule? I didn't have it. I mean, I just, I'm from the Midwest. You just do the work. You know, oh, do you have trouble finding your voice? Well, look for your voice. Go read oh, James. I'm Ohio Power. too. What? I said, I'm from Ohio. Daughters, steel workers from Ohio. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I come from, I like to say, I come from the buckle of the rust belt um, with the fake aluminum siding tutor. Um, <laughs> I really love that. God, it was ugly. Um, so, you know, I just, I wrote, the first thing I wrote um, that, that actually got some notice, I wrote a column for my high school newspaper and I won an award. And you just, you know, I think it's very helpful to do newspaper writing because you just got to turn it in. It has to get printed. And there's something called maximizing versus satisficing. And I had to work on that. So maximizing, these are terms from economics. That's when you do the very best job and you get it completely perfect. And I used to do this. It's sort of sick. I would spend all day Saturday doing the first line to my column, which is funny. I would make it the most radioactively funny thing. But then what happened, my column is due on Tuesday and I work with my editor on Monday and the copy editor on Tuesday, I had no energy left to do anything else. So it'd be like this race, the sick stress, horrible. And so I started satisficing. That's doing a good enough job. Now that sounds bad, but what it means is that, so for example, this week, I had like this lame joke, like, "Eh," but I just had the, whatever it takes, you know, oh, gross, it's disgusting and horrible. And I'm embarrassed. And I just moved on. And so then I got the whole thing done. And then from the place of like, ah, I'm done. Then I was able to go like, let's look at that joke. So that's a healthier process than what I used to do. And, and I want to give one other tip because I hear this like, oh, I had 65 people commenting my work. Nobody gets to read my work and say two words about it that go into my ears, you know, when they're not covered, if I don't respect their mind and their literary judgment. So very few people get to talk to me about my work. So I hire an editor. I have, even when I was like really, really struggling, you know, it's, I will go without anything to have an editor read and, and come at my work. And I may not agree with them on everything, but it gives me some pushback. So then I feel secure. It's not all just like this fog of words. It's like, oh, wait, no, don't agree with her there. But like, there's something there. Sometimes someone will give you criticism and they're wrong, but they're looking at something. They're just not seeing the thing that's really the problem underneath. It's really, really helpful. So, Amy, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, writing through it and, and, and just overcoming uh, whatever obstacles you come across. Are there, are there any like writing prompts or ways to kickstart your creativity? If you're just all blocked up, you don't know how to get started again. Do you have any process for just pushing through and, and sort of kickstarting your, your creative process? Yeah. Okay. I got this book used somewhere. It's called My Darling, My Gastroenterologist. I'm, I don't do, I write stuff. It has a purpose. It's like, here's science. And I have to put in all this like profanity and jokes and stuff. So you won't die reading it. Um, so um, especially medical science, my friend read it. She's like, this is terrifying. Tell jokes. Um, so I just look here. After Big Squirrel's Nap, we went to a place called the Coal Hole, a restaurant on the Upper West Side located in an old coal mine. You take an elevator car about 300 feet underground to the dining room. This guy, he is mad. He's a crazy man. And I say that in a very good way. Mark Lehner, um, L-E-Y-N-E-R. Just, I have books like this that I just opened. Oh, the other guy, what's his name? Did the setup. Oh, brilliant novelist. I don't usually read novels. Um, why am I forgetting his name? I love him. The setup, he won the Booker Man Prize. I wrote him a fan letter. It's over there. It came back because of COVID. He teaches at Columbia. Do you guys know who, who I'm talking about here? I'm going to look it up. Anyway, he's so, he, his writing's so perfect, so funny. Every line's good. So I'll look at somebody like that who inspires me and then I'll get excited. And then I turn back to the page. And so that's the thing I suggest. Or look at um, Gary Larson cartoons, love him. And then I have books here, like quote books and joke books and, you know, all sorts of stuff in Shakespeare's insults. You know, you just got to feed something in and because you can't just, it's like, you can't be a starving person and expect to produce something, you know, throw something inside, go talk to somebody. You can write about it. That's great. Well, what about you? If you're just all blocked up, do you do, you do writing prompts or what, how do you kickstart yourself? Yeah, I was going to say that I wanted to share this from Victor Hugo, what he used to do when he was um, blocked is that he would strip himself naked give his clothes to his servants. And he said, don't let me have my clothes back until I finish a chapter. 
And so he would be naked in a room with his pen and pencil. And he, it, the only way he could get out of there was by finishing. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that was one of my, that was one of my favorite anecdotes uh, from history. There's been others, but as far as myself, I mean, I, d I don't have a perfect answer. I'll be honest that there are times when I feel like I'm, I'm blocked because, I, and I know it's, it's my own self-sabotage. And so I need to use one of these kind of productivity hacks, trick myself. Um, other times I really don't know what's going on exactly. And it's more a case of just outliving it. One thing that I will say is that a trick I have found is sometimes, you know, it's, we all know at this point, it's impossible to make everybody happy in the world, right? So when you're writing something, if you're thinking about the audience being the whole world, it can be overwhelming. And so sometimes it helps to narrow that focus and just think this is going to be, this is going to be directed to one person. And you think of somebody who's really inviting, really understanding, like kind of your ideal reader. And you can actually write at the top of the page. I've done this. It's a silly trick, but I will write dear so-and-so to whoever I have in mind. And then I'll start writing the piece. And I find that I can write in a more kind of intimate and, um, it feels like more of a safe space and I have a more of a, like a focus on, on what I'm doing and who it's going to. And that can be a little trick that can help unlock things. Saying that I want to, I want to, I want to write, dear Derek, you're an asshole. <laughs> I love that you do that. Yes. Um, I just want to bring something in because I think that people don't consider, you mentioned at some point, well, something about biology. Um, I write in Unfuckology about our chronotypes. And so our chronotype, that's the time of day that's best for you to do things. Morning people are larks, night people are owls, middle of the day people get no cute bird name. But basically it's like, when are, when's your optimum energy? And for most people, it's really best to do the tough stuff in the morning. And so if you don't do that, um, it might be harder for you. Like I know that by four o'clock, because you're going to get tired. Willpower is not what people think. It isn't like juice you use up. But, you know, by there, there is fatigue that sets in. And so four o'clock, whatever I'm writing, it's not going to be that clear, like it would have been at eight o'clock, you know, and so um, you can by figuring that out, you're going to be less likely to have whatever people call writer's block where nothing happens or they're writing badly. And so but if you're like Athena, and you come home late at night, you know, it's really important. So willpower, what willpower really is, per the really good research on it, it's your body, your brain saying, it's your brain saying, are you just pissing away energy? Because if you are, I'm not going to give you any more. So if that's, if you seem to not be like to be doing something really difficult that doesn't pay off, your brain's going to go, okay, no more. And you'll just feel like, I don't want to do this anymore. So Athena, I want to hear it from you real quick, and then we'll get into Q&A from the audience. But Athena, you've mentioned how you have like shows queued up that have to do with what you're writing. But I'm curious if there are any other sort of creative hacks for ways to kickstart your own creativity? Um, I use, like, I recently started using Mila Notes to do, like, storyboarding of my current book in progress. So ways that I can keep images and links and quotations and things that inspire that book. But I also, on my door behind me, I keep sticky notes and, um, like, plot points and, and thoughts that come to me in the middle of the night. Um, I keep a notebook um, that has the last couple of pages marked as scraps. So the little thoughts that I, I need that will jumpstart something later on. I do the same thing in my phone. I dictate in Microsoft Word on my phone if I'm in the bed or I use the Bear app. Um, but I also think of every project that I'm working on as like a multimedia project in a way. Um, so there's always a playlist. There's always a list of documentaries. There's always a list of books. There's always a mood board somewhere or a list of images screenshotted in my phone that I can use to then find new entry into what I'm writing. So it's not just me trying to create the words, I'm creating an entire world. It's almost like um, Hannah Beckler from, um, that was the, the set designer for Black Panther. She could create it like a 400 page Bible for that movie. So every single detail of that movie she had plotted out before they filmed. It's almost like that with an individual project. So finding a way to make it more than just the words on the page gives you additional entries into what you're actually trying to create. So we got tons of audience questions here. So I want to get into some of them. Uh, this first one, uh, Will, let's start with you on this one. Uh, all right. So it's a little bit of a personal question. When my mother died in November, I was numb and couldn't read or write. I felt like a bomb went off in my head. I couldn't focus. Does that ever happen to you when your life circumstances traumatize your writing? 
Uh, yeah, I have to say yes. Not in the, not in terms of um, grief. I've been pretty lucky in that department, but I've had health issues, and and um, I, so I've felt the the world tip upside down, and you don't quite know who you are, or um, and your vision of the future has kind of been shattered. Um, I'm trying to think of what I wish I could have said to myself, maybe in the aftermath. Uh, immediate aftermath of those those events um i would say that for me and i i suspect for anybody who's tuned in this afternoon to hear about writer's block being a writer is something intrinsic to our identities and that while our lives can get screwed up the writing is part of our DNA and it will carry with us. So as we put ourselves back together, it will be there waiting for you. So I would not judge yourself if the writing's not coming uh, after a tragedy. I would focus on your mental health, on grieving, on surviving. And I, I, I can almost guarantee that the writing will be there waiting for you. Amy, Athena, anything to add to that? Um, I agree. I think um, I've said the word multiple times today about giving yourself grace. I think that we live in a creative world, not even just a world, but a creative world that expects so much production and interaction and connection that sometimes we forget that we're actually people writing and not just writers. And I think that if you are not compelled to write or read um, in this present moment, because that's a, that's a, a pit of grief, like you are not obligated to do anything like that. And in the time that you may feel like you want to write, understand that everything that you write doesn't have to be for public consumption. It doesn't have to be good. It just needs to be written. Um, I had not grief related to death, but I went through a very bad breakup and divorce. And that's what changed me from poetry to personal essay. It's that I felt that I couldn't write what I wanted to write. So I tried a new genre, but there's things that I've written that sit in a folder on my desktop titled, Good Morning Heartache, that will never see the light of day. It was just a way of getting all of that grief out of my heart and away from me. So give yourself the grace to not pick up a piece of paper or a book, but then when you feel like you're ready to, understand that everything that you write doesn't have to be for anyone else to read. Like that, Amy. Anything to add? Um, actually, I just want to bring up. I noticed there's this pink piece of paper on my wall here, and um, it says, "This is something from my my writing group." I don't know if you can see this. It says, "The only way out is through. Keep going." And um, I don't really. I mean, the the they said stuff on this that I I think that the more valuable thing I have to say is that I'm writing this terribly hard book each chapter it's medical. And so I come to it like a naked, ignorant baby. I'm not a doctor. I have to learn all the research and everything. And it's really, and it's all conflicted. And so I have to just get it, um, you know, get it done. And when you're in that stew of things, it's really terrible. But I wrote that down to remind myself, I did that after I finished um, a really hard chapter, that you just have to keep going. And I go from naked baby to like, oh my God, look at this. And then I come to a conclusion at the end of the chapter's done. And it takes a really long time. And you have to be, someone asked me something in the chat about like how many words you write on the low end. I don't even think that way. Um, you know, I just, I just do the time and it just, with this kind of writing and with like memoir writing, if you're writing something, you're not just going, here's what happened, but here's how I process this. Here's what it means to humans and everything. You're not going to go like, oh, look, I better turn out a thousand words. You're not going to say anything of value. And that's why I don't think the word count thing is helpful. The timer gets you around for, around being lazy. So next question, Athena, I want to start with you since this was kind of what your article was about. But for new writers that are experiencing a strong sense of imposter syndrome, what are some strategies you would suggest to help them through that feeling? I think the very first thing is to question what it's saying to you. Um, and I think that that's important because it's, I think at the root of any imposter syndrome is like a fear of you not being properly prepared, um, you not having enough to say. I think that there's a kernel or something that you need to pay attention to within that imposter syndrome. For me, sometimes that imposter syndrome is 
you know you didn't properly prepare for X, Y, and Z. So now you're afraid you're going to be exposed. So really question what the fear that that voice is saying to you. And then if you can figure that out, figuring out ways that you can manage that fear or manage that doubt. Um, and everything else from there, I think kind of falls like dominoes. But if you can listen to what it said, what it's saying, you could probably find some little bit of, of truth or some little bit of um, of guidance in the actual doubt that you feel. Will or Amy, anything else to add about how to get through imposter syndrome? What happens if you're exposed? Really nothing, momentary embarrassment maybe. And right, maybe I think people... Oh, sorry, go ahead. So I think it depends on the person that is experiencing it. That like there might be somebody who really wants to write and they don't have the confidence not to shrink away from something like that, that, that they need strategies to be able to bolster themselves. That like now I can be wrong about something and I feel like, okay, a little embarrassed, but I can, I can roll with it. But Athena 10 years ago coming out of MFA program, that would have buckled me because that was how I was at the time. So I think that it's like, they're helpful strategies for people who are trying to build that confidence. Um, and that's a very real fear for people, especially younger people who are coming into academic spaces or, or creative spaces who feel like they don't truly have a voice yet and are trying to like make their way into those worlds. It's okay to be bad at this. And the only way to get good at it is to be comfortable enough being bad with it, bad at it, that I stay. And so if you want to write, just be like, okay, everybody's bad at the beginning. So keep going right. and have the courage to suck. I have the courage to right. be bad. And that's what's happening too. better. Yeah, I think too, though, like this is just coming from a black writer. Sometimes the entryways into those spaces are few and far in between. So being able to be your best at the very beginning is sometimes very, very important because you might not get the opportunity to be in that space again. Um, so again, like I, I think I mentioned before about our strategies being from different genres because we all have different experiences and different types of writing that we're doing. It also can be said about different backgrounds that I know in my MFA program, I was the only black writer in that particular um, track in, um, admitted into that course that year. So my experience was completely different than the other people being able to come in and have other people who had same similar backgrounds. So I think it's just allowing the people from different backgrounds and from being a younger writer to have the opportunities to come into these spaces and be able to have coping strategies for things that really do happen, imposter syndrome and writer's walk, because they exist in different ways for different people. So we've talked a lot about uh, imposter syndrome, about creating the time. And for a lot, the, the third aspect of writer's block is perfectionism. We haven't talked too much about it. So, and this is a question coming from the audience as well. Will, I want to start with you. What, what part does perfectionism play in writer's block? Is it something you struggle with where you want it to be perfect before you put it down on the page? Yeah, absolutely. I think perfectionism is incredibly corrosive when it comes to writing. But for a lot of us, it's, part, it's, it's something that we... Um, we're trained to be. We, a lot of writers, um, we are first students for many, many years, and we know that in order to get to where we want to be, we have to be perfect students. That's, that's at least the messaging that we got. I certainly swallowed that, and I live that way, and so I developed um, the kind of A student pathology. <laughs> like, I really felt like that was where my self-worth comes from, that, you know, was basically a judgment of who I am, and it was very difficult to separate that from my writing because I fell in love with writing as a reader and writing as a kid had nothing to do with grades or academics or career. But those two things merge as they sort of do when you major in English and, and do a creative writing program. So it can be really hard to disentangle those, but it's very important and vital because I think if you're trying to get an A with your writing, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. Personally, it seemed like it for me. And letting yourself, as Amy says, be, have horrible first drafts, you know, like, or kind of embracing that initially, really important. But it's very difficult because, again, if you're, if you're trying to make your way through academia, uh, you, you don't have many, many options. You have to, you have to sort of be perfect. Um, so... I don't know. It's a struggle. Athena, last word on perfectionism to you. And then uh, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, obviously, I agree to disagree that imposter syndrome and, and the idea of, of perfectionism are indulgent. Um, I think that 
I think that it's easier to say that um, for writers who don't come from different backgrounds and different ilks. And so I'll just leave it at that. I think that my biggest goal as a writer, and I'm an editor, a developmental editor with a private list of clients. So I do that for people for money all the time. So I understand that there are people who are brilliant writers who still feel like they're going to be exposed for not being as good as they are. So it's a thing that happens and it may not necessarily be true for you, but it's true for other people. But my biggest thing with being a writer, a former English professor, a developmental editor is to help writers who are on the outside of this world see that there is a demystified version of this life, that there are people who are brilliant writers who come into spaces and who feel like they are not good enough, not because they are not good enough, but because the people who already exist within these worlds are expecting perfection from them from the very beginning. That I think sometimes the further writers cross, um, make it down the path, they forget what it was that very first step. That there are writers who could be amazing, brilliant writers if somebody would just reach back and say, I know what you're going through. And I understand that you feel like you're not good enough. Let me give you these tips to help you get there. That that's the, the way that we continue to bring new writers and brilliant writers into the world to help them avoid the pitfalls of imposter syndrome, to help them avoid writer's block in any way that they can, to help them avoid perfectionism. That if we don't, we exist in this echo chamber and I don't want that to happen for any other writer. So that's it. So before we sign off, I want to give each of you a chance to, to tell people where to find you online and if you have a book out, what the book is called. So Amy, we'll start with you. Where, where can people find you and what's your book? Um, my book is Unfuckology, A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence. It doesn't come with a sticky note in it. Um, um, and you can find it in bookstores, independent bookstores um, and online. And then I'm, um, oh, am I mute? It says I'm mute. No, you're, you're still. Okay, talking. good. Um, and then I'm um, Amy Elkhan, all one word on Twitter, spelled like this with a K. Um, awesome. Thank you. Athena, what about you? Any books to promote? Where can people find you? Um, my debut essay collection, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, debuted in September 2020 from Split Lip Press. Um, you can buy it directly through the press or via Amazon, Bookshop, or any independent bookseller. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Athena D. Dixon. And my website, athenadixon.com, has an events calendar to other events I'm doing, as well as publications and information on my editorial services. Awesome. And Will? Uh, yeah, so my first book was Areas of Fog, and that's available all the traditional places. Uh, my website is willdowd.net. I have a newsletter that goes out every full moon. You can sign up for that. And I am on social media, though I'm a bit of a social media delinquent. But uh, I still am on there for any important announcements. Awesome. So thank you, everyone, for joining us next week. We're going to be back same time, same place. We're going to be talking about kind of an extension of today's episode, which is writing versus life, how to write through tough times in life and when you have full-time jobs and all of that. So we'll be back to talk about that next week. Uh, Will, Athena, Amy, thank you all so much for being here today. It was a wonderful discussion. <laughs>